So today we're going to finish our series on the life of Joseph, um, which also means we're finishing a multi-year, like a four-year, four-part series on Genesis. And this has been glorious for me, and I, I trust for you. So I want to start by once again going over the big picture of what's happened in Genesis, just to remind you, and also because this will fit today's passage into its broader context. So Genesis starts with chapters 1 and 2 where God creates a massive universe and a beautiful planet Earth and Adam and Eve. And the way that God creates shows that he is flawlessly wise, shows that he is infinitely powerful, and that he is breathtakingly good and loving and kind and gracious and merciful, which means that if we understand his creation and who he's revealed to be through creation, it means that we have every reason to trust him perfectly, uh, to obey him instantly, and to, to love him supremely. God's revealed himself to us through creation. Now, the tragedy is that in Genesis 3, though, even though there's this beautiful story of creation in chapters 1 and 2, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve do what we have all done, trusted Satan's lies instead of God's truth, turned their backs on God, decided to live for themselves, to de decided to choose for themselves how they were going to live. And that's what the Bible calls sin. Because God is just, he must punish sin, and so all of us and the whole world have come under God's curse, which means we face his judgment forever. That's Genesis chapter 3. But also in Genesis chapter 3, there's a beautiful, shocking promise that God gives. He says that one of Eve's offspring, her great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchild, is going to destroy Satan's work so people can be set free from their sin and restored to God. And the rest of the Bible shows that that prophecy is fulfilled by Jesus Christ. He was the offspring of Eve, fully man and fully God. And he came and he died on the cross. He took God's curse for sin upon himself for all those who would trust him so that we can be completely forgiven restored to God, and have the joy of knowing him forever. That's our, our Jesus, and that's the promise in Genesis 3. Now, tragically, as the story proceeds through Genesis, chapters 4 through 11, we see sin spreading, so much so that by the time we get to the end of chapter 11, we can't see hints of any, but any godly people left on the earth, but in chapter 12, God raises up Abraham, and he promises Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to give you the promised land. And one of your grandchildren, great-great-great-grandchildren, one of your offspring is going to bring salvation to people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. And as the scriptures unfold, we see that that's fulfilled again in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who purchased salvation for people from every ethnic group. That's why we are here today, here in Abu Dhabi. And then, through the rest of Genesis, we see God repeating this promise that he's going to make a great nation of Abraham, that he's going to give them the promised land, and through them the Messiah is going to be born. God repeats that promise throughout Genesis, and he secures that promise throughout the book of Genesis. That's what's happening through the life of Abraham, 
the life of Isaac, the life of Jacob, and then here the life of, of Joseph. And that brings us then to this last section in the book of Genesis. Let's start with chapter 49, verses 29 through 33. And let's ask, what does Jacob, this is Joseph's father, Jacob, what does he emphasize about his burial, and why does he emphasize that? Start with verse 29. Then Jacob commanded them, his sons, and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Now notice how often Jacob mentions this particular field and the cave in it where he was to be buried. All through this passage. See, Abraham, years ago, Jacob's father Abraham had bought this field with its cave in order to be buried there. In fact, here's a map so you can see where this was. All right. Uh, there's, the, there's the cave right there. You can't really see that, but right there. And then this is all, the rest of the land is all Canaanite land. So Abraham's got this little field with a little cave for burial. Everything else around there is still under the control of the Canaanites. But Jacob said he should be buried there, in that field, in the midst of Canaanite land, because Jacob knew that that whole area would end up being given to God's people. And so he'd be buried in the land, which was all part of the promised land, part of God's people. Notice also how Jacob emphasizes that he be buried with God's people. States that, verse 29, wants to be buried with his fathers. In verse 31, he mentions he wants to be buried with Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, and Leah. So he wants to be buried with his people. Now, now why? We could think it's nothing more than just honoring the family. People do that today, right? You have a burial plot and family members are all buried there. That happens today. We could think it's nothing more than just simply honoring the family. And, and that, that would be a good reason, but there's more going on here than just that. Notice in verse 33, I'd never seen this before this last week. Jacob was gathered to his people before he was buried with his people. Look at verse 33. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. He hadn't been buried yet. That's months down the road still. He's not there at the field in Machpelah. He's still in Egypt. He is gathered to his people before he is buried with his people. Now why? I think it's because this passage and other passages are showing us that the moment he died, the moment Jacob died, he went to be with God's people in heaven in the joyful presence of God forever. 
he was gathered to his people, went right to heaven, before his body was buried with his people's bodies at the field of Machpelah. Now, do you remember in the old, it, it, when Jesus teaches, he says at one point in both Matthew and Mark, I believe, he's quoting the Old Testament about how God is the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And he says what that means is that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So if God is the God of Abraham, that means Abraham is still alive. If God is, God, if God is the God of Isaac, Isaac is still alive. God is the God of Jacob, Jacob is still alive. The Old Testament taught clearly eternal life. And so the moment that Jacob breathed his last, he was gathered to his people, which meant he went to be with God's people in the joy of God's presence forever. I just want to have us linger here a bit because we can read over and think about heaven and think about eternal life and, and not really let it impact us. And I think God wants to deeply impact us with this truth this morning. Because you are trusting in Jesus Christ, this is glorious news, all your sins have been forgiven. All your past sins, all your present sins, all your future sins have been forgiven. You are forgiven by God, which means that the moment you die, you will be welcomed into the presence of all God's people in the joy of, of God's presence forever. You will not face hell. You will not face a purgatory. You will immediately go to be with God because you've been completely forgiven through Jesus. That's what the Bible teaches. And that is huge to stop and think about. I mean, just do the math. How, how long are you going to live? Maybe 100 years, okay, if God really blesses you, right? 100 years. So there's 100 years maybe. So, so how long is eternity? Well, it's infinitely long, Right? So it just makes sense that we would be thinking a lot about eternity. But isn't it hard to do that? We get so caught up in what's happening here. Our hearts and our attentions and our affections and our desires can be completely focused on what's happening here, even though life here is relatively short and eternity is very, very long. So I just want you just, just to let this sink into your heart a little bit deeper this morning. Because you're trusting in Jesus Christ, the moment you breathe your last like Jacob did, you will be gathered to God's people to be in the joy of God's presence forever. And, and by the way, if, you, if you're not trusting Jesus Christ, let that weigh on you with how important this question is of eternal life. We're all going to die in this room. And Jesus came to save people from their sins. You need to be saved from your sins. We've all needed to be saved from our sins, and he came to save people from, our, from their sins. He will save you from your sins. Turn to him, trust him, bend the knee before him, receive him. You'll be forgiven, and you'll know you're going to be going to be with God's people in the joy of God's presence forever. So let this impact you. I thought of a couple of ways. One is, some of you are going through trials, difficult trials. Let this comfort you this morning right now in your trial because your trial is not going to last forever. Heaven is going to last forever and the joys of being in God's presence, beholding his glory in Christ will far more than make up for the trials you're going through now as horrifyingly heartbreaking as they might be and people do suffer terrible trials here but the joys of heaven will far more than make up for that. Let the security of eternal life because Jesus died like we sung Christ alone cornerstone this morning. His death, his finished work on the cross has secured eternity for you. 
It's in the bank. It's in the vault. The door's locked. You are going to heaven. Let the security of the fact that forever you're going to have ever-increasing, all-satisfying joy beholding God's glory in Christ, let that in this life free you to live a life of risk-taking, sacrificial love, to, to do all you can to relieve suffering throughout the world, especially eternal suffering, sharing the gospel with people, taking the risk to do that. Listen, life is short, eternity is long, the cross is real. Let's live lives of love here. Let this also impact you in terms of battling temptation. Let this motivate you because heaven will make every battle against sin worth it. And every battle against sin increases your joy in heaven forever. There's lots of ways that eternity will impact us, but I want you to see in this passage, the moment Jacob breathed his last, he was gathered to his people. He did not die buried and gone. He died, his body's still here. It'll be raised at the last day, but he is with his people in God's presence forever with the joy of beholding him face to face. That's the first point in this passage. That brings us to verse one of chapter 50. This next section is, is amazing. So here's the question I asked. Why so much emphasis on the embalming and the grief and the number of people who buried Jacob? This is amazing. Look at what Moses writes here. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Just a tender moment that Moses emphasizes there. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die, in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. So he's asking Pharaoh for permission to go to the promised land, to the land of Canaan, and bury his father. Verse 6, Pharaoh answered, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. Now get this. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh the elders of Pharaoh's household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, all the high-ranking govern, governing politicians and dignitaries, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company, wasn't it? It's huge, huge retinue of people going there. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. This does not happen every day. This whole group of people from Egypt come up, Egyptian dignitaries, to bury a... Jacob, who's Jacob, okay? This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians, so they, they gave the place a new name, 
Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim, which means grieving or mourning of Egypt. It's beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Moses wants us to understand that Jacob's burial was a big deal. This was a big extravaganza event. I mean, I can imagine if the Queen of, of England died, all the processionals and the mourning and the, the national, it'd be, it'd be a huge event to honor her. And that's what Moses wants us to understand. That's what's happening here with, with Jacob. I mean, think about it. He's embalmed, which lasted 40 days. Then the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. That's like over two months. Like if he started now, that would take you through November, right? Pretty much somewhere. Then Joseph gets permission to bury Jacob in the land of Canaan. And look at this list of people who go with him. All the servants of Pharaoh, all the elders of Pharaoh's household, the elders of the land of Egypt, the households of Joseph, his brothers and his father, chariots, horsemen. Moses says it was a very great company. It was. It was huge. They traveled 300 kilometers from Egypt, the land of Goshen, up to Palestine. It's about 185 miles for those mile people. So picture all these people making this journey. Okay, most of them were walking. This would have taken a long time. This was a huge deal going on here. Then in verse 10, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation for seven days. And this is so unusual that the Canaanites said, this is a huge mourning done by the Egyptians and they renamed the place. So why? Why does Moses emphasize so much this extravaganza of this burial procession and the burial of Jacob? Moses could have just simply said, and Jacob was buried in, in the field at Machpelah, but he goes into all this detail. Why? Here's why I think it is. I think Moses wants to show us that God is fulfilling his promise to make Israel into a great nation. It's happening. The promise that God gave us is happening. And to see this, I want you to compare Israel in Genesis 12 with Israel in Genesis 47 through 50. Just look at this chart here to see the difference. In Genesis chapter 12, the people of Israel were very few in number, but in Genesis 47 through 50, they have been fruitful and have been multiplied greatly, we read in chapter 47, 27. In chapter 12, Israel had no land. They were nomadic people wandering around, owned no land. Genesis 47 through 50, Israel had been given the best land in Egypt. The land of Goshen was theirs. From no land to the best land in Egypt. Israel had little to no influence in the area back in Genesis chapter 12. Just a, it's a small group of people, nomadic people, very unknown, no influence. But in Genesis 47 through 50, Joseph had become the number two man in all of Egypt. He's one of their people, Israelite person, number two man, taking care of all the food in Egypt, dealing with all the nations around Egypt who came to him to buy food. And a great number of Egypt's leaders traveled to bury Jacob. So the point is, Genesis 12, God promised, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Very little evidence of that back then. It's like, really? Me and these little, nomad, little nomadic people? 
But look at what happened then from Genesis 47 to 50. Massive number, growing, multiplying greatly, significant uh, influence and position, and best land of Egypt. God is fulfilling the promise he gave back in Genesis 12. He is making Israel into a great nation. Of course, there's more of that coming in the book of Exodus. Read it. But he is doing it. We're seeing it start to happen. And the reason I want to emphasize this to you is I would guess there are some of you this morning, and you're, you're back in Genesis chapter 12. You've heard God's promises, but you're seeing no evidence of the promises happening, and you've started to wonder if God's going to fulfill his promises. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm sure many of us are in that place this morning. This is a constant part of the fight of faith, is to keep trusting God's promises. It's called walking by faith and not by sight, okay? This is what we're talking about here. Some of you might be in the midst of a trial this morning and you know that God has promised to work everything out for good, Romans 8, 28, but you're not seeing any evidence of that good yet. You're still back in Genesis 12. You've got the promise and you've got the trial, but you're not seeing the good. Moses would say, trust him. Trust God. He keeps every promise. Great good is coming. Keep trusting him. Be strong. He's faithful. He will not let you down. His promises are good. You can take them to the bank. Others of you may be in a a temptation that you're battling. Significant temptation. Struggling. You know the right thing to do. Your heart's like pulling you both ways and you're battling back and forth. And you know the promise, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that God will give a way of escape with every temptation. He will give you a way of escape that you can endure it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, great promise to memorize. But you're in the midst of battling the temptation and you're not seeing the way of escape yet. Learn from this passage. When you're back in Genesis 12 where all you've got is the promise, Genesis 47 to 50 is coming. The escape from that temptation is coming. Keep fighting, keep resisting, don't wave the white flag of surrender to the sin, battle that sin tooth and nail to the death. God will bring a way of escape, you will be delivered from it, it will happen, trust him. It's true, God is that faithful. Maybe you're facing a big decision like a big decision, like should I marry this person? Where should my career be? Should we leave this country? You know, some big, big decision, and you're not sure what to do. And you know God's promised to give you wisdom, but you haven't gotten that wisdom yet. He will give you that wisdom. He promises. Maybe you're without a job, and you know God's promised to provide for you, but there's no job, and you're getting turned down. God will provide for you. Just go through the list of promises. We all have times where we're back in Genesis 12, where all we've got is the promise, And Moses would say, Genesis 47 to 50 is coming. He will fulfill his promise. God has never broken a promise. He will not fail you. He will not forsake you. Trust him, Grace Church. Trust him. Trust him. That's the second section here in this passage today. And that brings us to verse 15. What does Moses emphasize in verses 15 through 21? What's the main point here? When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Like, dad's gone. We we might be in trouble now, okay? 
So they sent a message to Joseph, which, which is probably a lie, saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. At least we see no evidence of that in the previous chapters of Jacob saying that. And now please, these messengers say, forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Maybe he knew, what are they thinking? Of course I'm going to forgive them. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? It's not my place to judge, to punish. I've forgiven. As for you, you meant evil against me. He doesn't whitewash it. Brothers, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Hey, what's the main point here? When we read Bible history, we want to especially focus not just on the events and what's emphasized, that's crucial, but also what is spoken by the characters in the historical story what, what do they say? And so I think that what Joseph is saying here in verse 20, I think is at least one of the main points of this section because it summarizes all of Joseph's life. Here's a one-sentence summary of Joseph's life. Read it again, verse 20. He's talking to his brothers. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, again, think about the evil that Joseph's brothers had done to him. Imagine that your brothers one day just tied you up and sold you to some foreigners to be a slave. Goodbye, good riddance, making some money. This was a horrible evil that they had done. There is no excuse for it. It is wicked all the way through. You meant evil against me. The problem, though, is that too often we stop there. And that's all we think. Person, somebody did evil to me, period. Person did evil to me, period. That's half of the story, but there's a whole nother amazing half here. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Underline that word meant, that second word meant in your Bible. That is a shocking word to stop and think about. It's the exact same Hebrew word. Both words meant, Hebrew word chabash, the exact same Hebrew word there. It describes both what the brothers did, you meant evil against me, and what God did. God meant their evil to bring great good. And you know the great good that God brought through this, right? He allowed God's people to survive a famine. He prospered the people of Israel, best land of Goshen, the whole story. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. What God did not do was see the brothers doing evil and then stepping in at that point and turn their evil around for good. 
That's what we tend to think God does. But God is much bigger than that. His sovereignty is much more over everything than that. He meant their evil for good. Which means that God never did evil. God never, ever does evil. Without doing any evil, God planned the brother's evil. God ordained the brother's evil. God purposefully allowed the brother's evil. Planned, ordained, purposefully allowed. All those words are, I have found to be helpful ways of describing what God does here. Now, this is not easy for us to understand. If this is the first time you've considered a truth like this, you probably have lots of questions in your mind. That's a good thing. Work on those questions. If this is the first time you've considered this, this may take a while for you to process and to study and to come to terms with. But this is one of those teachings in the Bible where we need to let the Bible shape our thinking and not have our thinking shape what we think the Bible is saying. Does that make sense? This is one of those times where we need to say, your ways are beyond my ways. Because I don't know how it works to have God be sovereign over human actions and have us not be robots. Because you'll hear people say, well, if God's sovereign for people's actions, then, then we're just robots. That is not what the Bible says. The Bible is very happy to have both of those statements right in the exact same verse together, like here. You, brothers, meant evil against me. You weren't robots. You chose to do evil against me. That is judgeable. That is accountable. That is a moral wickedness. Either Jesus paid for that sin and you're forgiven, or you, brothers, will pay for that sin in hell. They were not robots. You meant evil against me, but that's not the whole story. God meant your evil actions. He planned them. He ordained them. He purposefully allowed them to bring about great good. And the Bible just could put those right smack dab together with no problem. It's all over the place once you start to look at it. And both are true. Some groups might tend to emphasize one over the other, but they're both true. God is sovereign over everything that happens, including every human action and every human action is accountable, is responsible, is a true, genuine human choice and, and action. So I would just appeal to you, keep thinking about that. If you're thinking, oh, I don't know, I, I get it. I totally get it. This is not easy to embrace, but it's true. And it may take you some time to ponder and process. What this means is that God is in sovereign control over everything but specifically over evil, sovereign control over evil. Let me give you an illustration. What's the worst evil that's ever happened in the universe? It's the cross. We killed God. God came to earth in the person of Jesus to show us how real he is, how good he is, how powerful he is, how loving he is, and we, if we would have been there, we would have been right there saying, crucify, crucify him. We, we killed him. That is the worst evil in the universe. And look at how that's described in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. This is an amazing statement. And just let it just stretch your thinking. 
God's people are praying. They're talking to God about the crucifixion that had just happened recently. Look at what they say. They're praying. They say, truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. There were gathered together Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Jesus' death, the most evil event in the universe, was something God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. What Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jews meant for evil, God meant for good, glorious good. We are so glad for that good, aren't we? But what Pilate and Herod and the Gentiles and the Jews meant for evil was what God meant for good. This is what Moses wants us to understand about Joseph's life. This is a crucial truth. And again, if you haven't thought about this much before, you might be thinking, that's impossible, that can't be, I get it, I've been there. But I'll just appeal to you, keep studying. You'll start to see this all over the scriptures. And I have found this so deeply comforting and helpful. And I'm hoping that you will find it deeply comforting and helpful. I would guess that some of you live in fear of reckless drivers here in Abu Dhabi, of criminals, possibly, of unjust managers. You live in fear of what somebody might do to you or one of your loved ones. Or you live in bitterness about what someone has already done to you in the past. And I would encourage you that that this truth, while not taking away from the heartache that you have experienced or that you could experience, and these are real heartaches that God's people experience, but the point that Moses would want us to understand is that you do not need to fear what anyone does to you. Because the God of perfect love and flawless wisdom and infinite power is in control of what everyone does. So you do not need to fear. Not because that means nothing hard will happen to you. That's not at all what the Bible teaches. Oh, I, I, wish, I wish hard things didn't happen to us. But God is much smarter than me. He has his plan. And the Bible's clear that hard things happen to his people doesn't mean we avoid all trials, but it means that when people harm us or if people have harmed us, God is in control of that. And great, great good is coming. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. Everything God does brings great good. And so even though you might be back in Genesis 12 not seeing much good yet, the good is coming. Great good is coming. So I would encourage you, take this verse, Genesis 50, 20. I mean, I have, I have prayed this verse probably hundreds. I mean, I'm 63 years old, okay? So it's not, I'm not bragging. I've, I've prayed this verse probably hundreds of times. It probably should have been thousands. But anyway, I've prayed this verse hundreds of times. When I'm bitter about what somebody has done or fearful about what somebody might do, 
hundreds of times and again and again and again, the Holy Spirit has used this truth about God to free my heart from bitterness. Okay, it was wrong, but great good is coming. To free my heart from fear, I do not need to fear that happening. My Father is in complete control, and whatever He allows, He will sustain me through and bring me great good through. I can trust Him. And so I would encourage you to make Genesis 50 part of your weaponry, part of your armory, one of the sword of the Spirit that you can fight the temptations and the fears and the worries and the bitterness and the unforgiveness and the anger that can come. Oh, some of you need to be freed from bitterness and unforgiveness. Some of you need to be freed from that anger so that you can not say that what they did was right. What you did was wrong. It was evil, Joseph said, but so that you can trust God for it and be freed from the unforgiveness and the bitterness and the anger. I can trust you, Father, for this. I surrender this to you. You've promised that great good is coming. Help me. Strengthen me. And he will meet you. Others of you need to be freed from, from fear this morning because you can know that God is in control of whatever anybody might do. He will sustain you through whatever it is, and he will bring great good to you through whatever it is. Genesis 50, 20. I commend it to you for your fighting the fight of faith. One more paragraph in Genesis. A little puzzling here. Why does Moses end this book with Joseph in a coffin in Egypt? If you're writing a book, you want the last sentence of that book to like just really, it's really important. Like you've thought a lot, what should the last sentence of the book be? Right? No, that's not going to work. Not, ah, there it is. That's the last sentence. So what's the last sentence of the book of Genesis? Start in verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, his son, were counted as Joseph's own. So he saw his kids, grandkids, great-grandkids. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Repeats the promise of God. God's going to bring us to the land. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Joseph knew he was dying. Verse 26, here's the last sentence, or next to the last sentence. Joseph died, being 110 years old, and here's the last sentence. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. What kind of last sentence is that? <laughs> Moses, come on, man. Help us out here. You wrote a great book except for this part, you know. But think about it. We've read all these promises of what God's going to do. Make you into a great nation. Give you the promised land. Send the Messiah. Great promises of what God's going to do. So why would, Joseph, why would Moses end by saying Joseph's in a coffin in Egypt? I think the whole point is to say more's coming. Reader, go on to Exodus. Look ahead. Genesis is part one, okay? Exodus is part two. So look ahead. And see, I, I want to encourage us with that because we, as God's people, always need to be encouraged to look ahead because Exodus is coming where God does visit them, take them, free them out of Egypt. Remember the plagues and all that whole story. Frees them from Egypt. Gives them the promised land through Joshua. Brings the Messiah through them. We're moving up into the New Testament now. 
Jesus came and he died on the cross, paid for sins, saving people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. That's what's happening today. He is saving people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. But Moses would say, keep looking ahead. That's not all that's going on. Look to, look to eternity. Look to the future. Look to the, the promises. And so I want to close this series on Genesis by saying, Grace Church, look ahead to what's coming. Look ahead to what God has for you. Lift up your eyes from, we, 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 gotta, we gotta put our head down and work sometimes at our job. We gotta do the laundry. We gotta take our kids, help our kids and all kind of stuff we gotta do. But there are times where you gotta just lift up your eyes. More often than we tend to do. Lift up your eyes, right? From the trials and from the temptations and from the work and from the difficulties and the deadlines, lift up your eyes. Salvation is coming. Eternity is coming. At the end of history, Jesus Christ will come back. All those who have bent the knee to Jesus and received him are going to be welcomed into an eternity of ever-increasing, all-satisfying joy. Lift up your eyes and see that. And if you're not trusting Jesus yet, lift up your eyes this morning to see what he in his love has told you is going to happen so that today, bend the knee before Jesus and put your trust in him. Look ahead, church. Look ahead, those of you who are not yet part of the church. See what's coming. See what is coming. Jesus is going to come back at the end of history. Look ahead. Trust him, love him, live for him. He's coming back. Let's stand. Father, I pray that you would stir each of our hearts to look ahead to what you've promised, that your promises are true. Jesus Christ, you're going to come back. And I pray that you would touch those who are going through trials in a powerful way right now, Lord, and free them, encourage them, help them. Those who've been hurt horribly by other people, Lord, that you would free them from the bitterness and the unforgiveness, and that they could trust you, even in their tears, that they could trust you. Those who are living in fear of what somebody might do to them, Lord, I pray that you would free them. So, Lord God, help us to take this passage now. See that what others mean for evil, you mean for good. Free us, strengthen us, comfort us, help us.